my name is Amanda Reyes, and I'm a film and television historian, and I'm also the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, 1964-1999. And I'm a huge fan of Night Gallery, so I'm really excited to be here. Um, this episode features the segments The Dark Boy and Keep in Touch, We'll Think of Something. It originally aired on November 24th, 1971. Um, so the credits announcement uh, is coming to us uh, thanks to the great and wonderful Mike Rode, who I know best as the voice of Ray Spannon from the Johnny Quest cartoon. But Rode was involved in a lot of voice work during this era. So according to Scott Skelton and Jim Benson's excellent book, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, an after-hours tour, producer Jack Laird would send Polaroids to Serling of Tom Wright's evocative paintings along with the pithy synopsis so Serling could compose his intros. Laird described The Dark Boy as, quote, a moving story set in rural America. And, you know, it is indeed a bit of an unexpected entry in the series, showing a lot of sensitivity to the mostly undiscussed issues of grief and loss. And it's one of the best examples from the series of how to introduce those kinds of heady subjects in this kind of one-off anthology format. I think Wright's painting certainly captures the ghostly themes as well. And this particular repository. So this is John Aston's third and last entry as director in the series. Uh, like with his previous entries, Aston made some really interesting visual choices to tell the story. And in The Dark Boy, uh, these cues kind of root out the subtext in really fascinating and often poignant ways. So The Dark Boy is based on a short story by August Derlith, um, and it was adapted by Halston Wells. Uh, Wells keeps the whole affair pretty faithful to the original work. Um, Derlith and his publishing house, uh, known as Arkham House, uh, and that name comes from a tribute to Derlith's relationship with H.P. Lovecraft, uh, the Arkham House would become a major vein for producer Laird, who used it often when looking for material to adapt. And of course now we're coming up on um, the lovely Elizabeth Hartman, who plays Judith Tim. Harmer was quite young here, uh, but she'd already been nominated for an Oscar for 1965's Apache Blue, and she handles this particular part with a lot of sensitivity to the subject matter, um, you know, and grief and loss, and ultimately finding closure. Uh, and it's no surprise to me that she'd already been up for an Academy Award. And, you know, this small cast actually features an Oscar winner as well. So uh, we just saw a long shot of Hope Summers and uh, Gail Sondergaard. Um, Sonnegard won the very first Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role in Anthony Adverse from 1936. Uh, this is a top-notch cast. Everyone is putting in fine performances. Um, and John Aston himself had already been nominated for an Oscar in 1969 for a short film he directed titled Prelude. So obviously Aston was quite adept already at making short films and, um, you know, The Dark Boy shows some really interesting filmic choices that are subtle and superb. Uh, for instance, I love that we're introduced to the Moore sisters as they toil away on the land, but they're also framed with this very feminine house. It's got this beautiful lavender lining, the facade. Um, earlier, before we saw Judith, Aston gave us shots of roses, and he's setting up a couple of themes here. So the natural world will be a big part of the visual storytelling in The Dark Boy, but also these three characters may somewhat typify common stereotypes, which Aston, I think, turns on its ear. We've got the pretty school teacher, and of course the older ladies, which may have at one time been considered spinsters. But also important is that these are women who work and they work hard, and they are also feminine and live in a very feminine space, in what looks like mostly a somewhat unforgiving land. So these are all strong characters and not simple stereotypes, and I think Aston does a great job of setting this up. So this wouldn't be Hartman's first time working in the rural Gothic either. Uh, just a few months prior to the airing of The Dark Boy, Hartman appeared in Clint Eastwood's The Beguiled, and one of her co-stars was actually Pamela Ferdin, who appears in a season two episode of Night Gallery titled Brenda. 
So another one of Aston's choices I appreciate in The Dark Boy is how he sets up the suspense of the mysterious letter by giving these scenes a feel of a silent western movie. Aston drives this concept home through the lack of verbal dialogue in this scene in particular and the great piano player music that's emitting from Ed Sauter's really wonderful and somewhat divergent score. Uh, you know, it's got this in it, but it also has some really swelling sounds. I'll point one out when we get to it. And they really project um, these great emotional components that we're about to walk into. And here we're coming up on something really interesting. So for me, the note, which we're going to see here, says don't come. Um, it reminds me of dialogue cards or what they call title cards when those you used to see in silent films. And of course, silent films date back to the late 1800s, which is likely the era that Dark Boy takes place as well. And yet another interest, interesting sort of old school filmic technique I think Aston employs is the use of the dissolve, which we just saw here. So Georgia Malays uh, was the first to try the dissolve in 1899, again, which fits in perfectly with the 18th century setting of the dark boy. And of course, then it was much more difficult. He accomplished this by closing the lens aperture, rewinding the film, and then reopening the aperture slowly to give a double exposure. It was a pretty popular mode of scene transitioning in the early days of film, but then other effects like the wipe took over, and the dissolve actually wasn't used as nearly as often in the 70s or 80s, so this feels like a deliberate choice on Aston's part. However, aside from taking cues from the era to aid in the visual choices, Aston is also using the dissolve to continually remind the audience of the natural world uses this shot here as a good example. As the dark boy progresses, you'll notice that scenes don't simply dissolve into one another. There will be a shot placed between the two scenes, and it might be of the moon or of birds or what we just saw of the sun. Uh, this is vital, I think, to the film because it works as a way to link death and grief to nature. This is a process just like everything else in the natural world. And of course, it was a gorgeous shot. Anyway, um, it really brings home that Aston and screenwriter Wells understand the importance of making this connection. And it's lovely. Uh, it's just lovely. Um, it's these little moments and the way Aston uses genre to explore all of these ideas that I think make the Dark Boy such an outstanding entry in the Night Gallery series. And so these kids here that you see, um, Aston told Skelton and Benson in their book that he worked pretty closely with the kids um, who played Judas students. He even shot scenes where they got to speak, but those had to be admitted because he um, they'd been hired to, for their non-speaking parts. So Derlitz is known for his tales in the Midwest Gothic, which is certainly aligned with the rural and the Rust Belt Gothic. Um, the Gothic in general is a fluid term, but in relation to it and this segment, it's about how the rural or Midwest Gothic makes use of how it aligns nature with the supernatural, and also that the dark boy is about things that are left unsaid. If the Gothic arose from tensions and societal changes in Europe in the late 1800s, the rural Gothic can kind of address themes and issues which hold importance to that region. And to help set up those ideas, I wanted to think a bit about what Bernice Murphy says about regional landscapes and gender in her book, The Rural Gothic in American Popular Culture. She writes, quote, the wilderness slash backwoods setting is often depicted as a space inhabited or journeyed through by men, end quote, and that women are often entirely absent. But here the female characters, particularly Judith, are used to help explore the emotional trauma and of course, the cho choice for that is likely because women in society are allowed to exercise feelings of grief, whereas men are expected to repress it. Uh, Lisa Lewis writes about how grief is handled in the Midwestern Gothic and in her, her dissertation, Not Yet a Time for Grief. She writes that the Midwest is a pace, place of public stoicism and private grief, and that two key ideas inform the Midwest Gothic, restraint and the unspoken. 
Um, it is the landscape that informs these responses to sadness and loss. Lewis notes, quote, at first the flatness of the landscape appears one-dimensional, static, and dull, until you realize the vastness is overwhelming, limitless, eternal. The void can swallow you. Many characters face the emotional and physical void of rural Midwestern communities. They must deal with feelings they can never voice, not even to those closest to them. So Durlith is taking on the female point of view to help kind of open up that discourse. And there's a ton of neat regionally gothic elements at play here. And I'll mention a couple of them throughout the track. But while she's on camera, let me talk a little bit more about Sondergaard, um, who plays Abigail Moore. She would have been pretty familiar with the Midwest. She was born in Litchfield, Minnesota. She attended the University of Minnesota. And in this era of her career, Sondergaard was appearing in a lot of genre work. Um, in 1970, she co-starred in Savage Intruder, a.k.a. Hollywood Horror House, which also starred another actress from the Golden Era, Miriam Hopkins. And in 1973, Sondergaard would appear in Curtis Harrington's excellent made-for-TV movie, The Cat Creature, which starred Meredith Baxter. But I also wanted to point out that we don't see a dissolve here. Of course, we're heading to a commercial. But also, Judith has remarked that she likes to work hard and work longer hours because it keeps her mind off of things. And I think the transition here to black is a great way to express the void left by her husband's death. Albeit it's a bit unintentional, but I think it's really effective to watch it here. So one of the things I love most about The Dark Boy is how it feels like we're building into a more traditional ghost story. One that might have more visceral thrills, but it ends up becoming a really sweet and sad story about a man grieving the loss of a child. Uh, the creepy pastoral grave, moody lighting, and putting Judith alone in the schoolhouse at night would seem to be a recipe for a more conventional horror segment, and Aston and screenwriter Wells build it up this way so we can't really anticipate what's going to happen, right? Saunter's score plays a big part in leading our expectations in the wrong direction, and his compositions here are sublime. They bring with it a lot of emotional cues. Here the music, as I mentioned earlier, is swelling as we prepare to get our first glimpse of the dark boy. So, of course, one of the most common tropes of the Gothic, Midwestern or otherwise, is um, the difficulty in reconciling the past and apparitions arriving as sort of a manifestation of that inability to find closure. So then the dark boy is not necessarily a physical reality, but rather he's here because of repression, feelings of guilt. And for the dark boy's father, ultimately, he's an expression of the terror of feeling and dealing with this loss. So while Judith ultimately serves as a conduit for the father to come to terms with the child's death, I see the dark boy much more as a metaphor than a ghost in the more conventional sense that we may think of one. And of course, we've just seen our dark boy. Um, the character's name is Joel Robb, and he is producer Jack Laird's adopted son, Michael. So little Michael Laird is perfectly cast here. He's got this very sweet but brooding quality to him, much like the actor who plays his father. And I can see why Judith is drawn to him and curious about him. Um, this was the first of three night gallery appearances for Michael Laird. The other segments are Fright Night and Spectre in Tap Shoes. And, you know, I don't want to conflate this episode with anything related to the Twilight Zone, but the one sort of Serling connection I noted in this episode is that I was struck with how Laird cast his son to play a dead child, and it reminded me of Rod Serling naming the doomed female driver Nan um, in that Twilight Zone episode titled The Hitchhiker, because, of course, Nan is the nickname for his daughter Anne. It's so interesting that both Laird and Serling used their real children in some way to tell darker fictional stories about lives cut short. Maybe it serves as a way to work out the filmmaker's own anxieties. Um, I'm not sure. I just find it really interesting. And I think it's really a testament to the production of Night Gallery that the dark boy is so fully realized. Um, 
So in Rod Serling's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, John Aston speaks about taking time in pre-production to look for the right spots to shoot the segment. He was under advice from production uh, designer Joe Alvis, who uh, tipped him off on what areas of the backlog might best serve Aston and cinematographer Leonard South. So now South came in kind of at the last minute to replace the original DP, Lionel Linden. Um, Linden had to drop out for health issues. And so South and Elvis worked on a few night galleries together, uh, but they had actually worked on Hitchcock's 1966 feature film, Torn Curtain, prior to the series. And Elvis was um, in the art department in an uncredited position, and South was a camera operator. Uh, in fact, South uh, worked in that capacity in nearly a dozen of Hitchcock films, including The Birds and North by Northwest. Later, when he been promoted to director of photography, South would be the cinematographer on Hitchcock's family plot. And, you know, in 1973, Elvis and South uh, also worked on the fabulous made-for-TV movie Screen Pretty Peggy with Betty Davis. In fact, during this era, South was shooting a lot of classic TV movies, including the ABC movie The Week, Home for the Holidays in 1972, Cole's Night's Death in 73, and another ABC movie The Week uh, from 1974 titled Hitchhike, which is really great, uh, kind of an underrated movie with Cloris Leachman, directed by Gordon Hessler. And that's followed by the classic Saints Triangle. So he was putting in some really great work in, in these TV movies. Alvis was just around the corner from a reunion with Spielberg, working as the production designer on Jaws, which hit theaters in 1975. And, well, you know, that really took over our hearts and imaginations, one of my favorite films. But I wanted to get back in touch uh, with the statement Aston made about pre-production. To the best of my knowledge, many of these programs are shot in a matter of days, so everything really does rely on pre-production and preparedness. And while The Dark Boy is told in a rather straightforward manner, Aston incorporates a lot of flourish into the proceedings to help it take on new meaning. So the visuals really help elevate the subtext, you know, in a different way. Aston told Skelton and Benson that he had heard talk that this might be a good story to put up for Emmy nominations, but sadly nothing came of it. And... That's really too bad because uh, I think this episode is definitely worthy of greater and larger praise. Um, and of course, here we're being introduced now to Tom Robb. Uh, the broodingly handsome Michael Baisleon plays him. And um, so his parents were immigrants from Greece. But like Sondergaard, Baisleon was born in the Midwest. It was Missouri. But he grew up in Chicago. And he would attend the University of Chicago taking speech classes to help with the stutter that he had as a child. Uh, the earliest mention I could find of acting work for him was in a 1949 theater production of Room Service. Um, one of his castmates was William Daniels, uh, who you might best know for Seen Elsewhere or Boy Meets World or the voice of Kit on Knight Rider. Um, Baisleon actually made his debut on Broadway in a production of Caligula. Later in the late 60s, he appeared in a production of A Streetcar Named Desire, which also starred the great Beatrice Strait, and he was featured in a production of Wait Until Dark. Um, he was an extremely diverse actor. He worked in everything from Shakespeare to musicals. But during this era, he was doing a lot of TV, and his first on-screen appearance was in an episode of Naked City in 1961. Other shows he appeared in include Bracken's World, Here Come the Brides, um, and East Side, West Side. But he apparently struggled a little with the roles he'd been handed on TV, mostly in the 70s, um, because he began to work mostly as a heavy. However, in interviews, he said he enjoyed the work, and in 1978, he said that his favorite role on TV was in the Starsky and Hutch episode, Deck Watch, where he plays a serial killer holding people hostage. Um, he said he felt sorry for the character and was able to bring that to the role. And I think it's important to talk about uh, what an amazing presence Baisleon is here in the role of Tom Robb. That the character shows up halfway in a 30-minute segment and can evoke so many emotions is really a testament to his immense talent. 
Um, and he, the character that he plays, Tom Robb, feels really faithful to the original short story by uh, Derlith, uh, who was an extremely prolific writer. And, you know, it would be impossible to summarize his entire career here. And I'm not an expert on his writing. So I wouldn't want to do him a disservice by trying to incorporate every facet of his work into this track. But while Laird used Derlith's publishing house as a great source for material, only three of his short stories were adapted for the series. There was, of course, The Dark Boy, which we're watching, and also Lagoda's Heads and House with Ghost. So those all got the night gallery treatment. Um, Derlith actually died in July of 1971, and all of these adaptations appeared shortly after his passing. So surprisingly, although he was published dozens upon dozens of times, and that's not a lie, um, only a handful of his works were ever adapted for anything else outside of a night gallery. Um, his stories show up in some great classic anthology shows like Thriller and Lights Out, but most notably it might be the 1967 theatrical adaptation of The Shuttered Room that he might best be remembered for. Um, the Shutter Room starred Oliver Reed, Carol Lindley, and Gig Young. It was directed by David Green, who's a filmmaker who worked predominantly in TV, but did some great theatrical work, too. The original book was actually born out of Derlith's relationship with H.P. Lovecraft. The two began as pen pals and then transitioned to friends and, of course, contemporaries. After Lovecraft's death, uh, Derlith put the Shutter Room together with fragments of stories and notes that Lovecraft had left behind. Um... But aside from his rich publishing history and friendship with uh, Lovecraft, Derlith was a master at telling Wisconsin-based stories. He sometimes immersed himself inside the Midwestern Gothic. And, of course, The Dark Boy, which was originally published in February of 1957 in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, was later published in a 1962 collection of Derlith's short stories, uh, which he titled Lonesome Places, and which is very much regionally based um, terror tales. Finally, The Dark Boy was republished in Rod Serling's Night Gallery Reader in late 1987, and one of the editors on that release was Serling's wife, Carol. So the sisters here are great. Um, I haven't pointed out Hope Summers, who plays Letty Moore. Um, there she is talking. If you're a fan of classic TV, you recognize her from being Aunt B's best friend, Claire Edwards, on The Andy Griffith Show. Um, she was on The Rifleman. And I think genre fans will think of her from her small role in Rosemary's Baby when they see her here. But she actually didn't get into a lot of film and TV until she was in her mid-50s. She was actually a well-established radio actress. So maybe it's not a surprise to see that she was the voice of the original Mrs. Butterworth as well. And also, I want to point out this stylistic thing we have here. That shot we had with Elizabeth uh, Hartman framed in between the two women. This is a great stylistic moment in this segment where Aston is highlighting the concept of doubling. We've got a couple of doubles here. We've got the two sisters. Uh, and we have Judith and Tom Robb, who are both grieving the loss of loved ones. Doubling in the Gothic serves different purposes. Um, there's this general idea that mirroring opposites is a way to reflect both good and evil. But this mirroring effect can also be understood as the division of the self. Both Judith and Tom are struggling with their losses and can see in each other the things of which have been left unsaid, which is, you know, of course, a big part of the regional Gothic. So I think, you know, Halston Wells did a really good job, you know, uh, tapping into this natural world aspect and i think he did it naturally uh for lack of a better word because he was very much into nature himself in between attending yale and literally writing hundreds of scripts for television as well as the classic western 310 to yuma wells was an expert in dwarf evergreens and he ran a nursery for the last three decades of his life so Wells burst into the theater scene in 1935. He directed a Broadway production of Murder in the Cathedral. Later, he would go back to Yale to teach theater. But all of these things that he accomplished, gardening was something he held a deep fascination with, and raising evergreens became a part of his daily work schedule. 
in the 1970s, he was known to write from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., and then he'd spend the rest of the afternoon in his garden. He said in an interview with Gertrude Dahlberg uh, for the White Plains Journal News that it gave him, quote, the peace of mind in which ideas come drifting up out of the unconscious like trout rising to the surface of an evening pond, end quote. Wells even cut the sandstone that made the exteriors of his lavish home, which overlook his garden. Um, in the same interview, he told Dahlberg that he enjoyed writing about worlds unknown and seemed fond of his work for Night Gallery. He said, I never met a werewolf or devil in person, but I've written several Night Gallery plays about them. It's a rather exhilarating to lose yourself in a werewolf or a devil, expand your personality. And so I think Wells was perfectly suited to adapt this pastoral ghost story. Um, he would ultimately write a handful of episodes for Night Gallery. I think this one's probably my favorite. Um, but I also want to talk about the scenes we just saw. Uh, so Tom Robb's other son, which is played, he's played by Stephen Lorang. He really captures um, the harshness of the land, but also the beauty of it. Uh, because he's got this gentle nature that we saw with the birds. And even though Tom is this gruff character, as we see here, um, I think the scenes with the son also express that there may be a gentleness to him as as he raised this child, right? So this was Lorang's only on-screen credit. Um, the character's name is Edward. But I also love how defiant Judith is here. Her lack of fear with the Moore sisters, the ghost, and Tom Robb really show her inner strength. And I think Hartman does a great job at that. But I want to talk about this scene in particular. So this is one of my favorite moments. The set design here is exquisite. We're looking at a tablecloth and dishes, which bring a sort of quote-unquote feminine touch to Tom Robb's house. What I love so much about it is that it's a reminder to not just Tom, but also to the audience of the wife he lost. There is presence in her absence, and I feel a lot of compassion towards him. And, 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 I must say the chemistry between Judith and Tom is fabulous. Um, I love these two together. So, in 2016, Lynette S. Moran attempted to unwind the ways in which grief and loss are displayed in men in film. Her paper is titled Men in Mourning, Depictions of Masculinity in Young and Older Widowers in Contemporary Films. So, of course, it's obviously about widowhood, but masculinity and grief is still kind of a new ground for research and study. Um, her work points out that grief is expected to follow a sort of general arrangement of emotions, which are expected to ultimately lead to recovery and to adapting to the loss. There is pressure to move forward in a timely manner, and veering away from that is not something recognized in our society. She notes that death is commonplace in popular media, but bereavement is not. Because of this, media kind of inadvertently has aided in defining the suppression of emotion. So when grief is depicted, it's shown in a few common ways, um, one of which is what Moran called isolated grief. Uh, while the men in these stories were shown as able to rebuild relationships destroyed after the death of their spouses, she notes that it appeared the characters were actually isolated because they possessed aggressive demeanors before their death, uh, before the death of their wife, pardon me, as though it was the wife that understood how to have a healthy relationship and not the husband. So while Moran stated that films are not always a reflection of a lived experience, they do contribute to our understanding of emotions and certainly situations and define our expectations. Men are generally portrayed as stoic and strong. And of course, we saw that. Clearly, Tom strong, stoic and isolated. But what I love so much about this scene is that we're allowed to see the depth of his loss. Men crying so openly in film and TV is not terribly common, but this episode of The Night Gallery takes us there and lets the actor, who is so often cast as a villain or bad guy, openly express deep angst and sorrow. And this is a really a very extraordinary moment for television. And I think the portrayal of Tom Robb is all the more interesting to me because 1971 was also the year of the rural purge. Westerns and shows set in rural settings such as Paul Henning's productions, Green Acres, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Petticoat Junction, 
And all the Westerns like the Virginian and High Chaparral were incredibly popular in the 50s and 60s, but by the early 70s, the networks wanted to change the face of TV and focus more attention on urban set programming. And there was a huge upsurge in grittier cop shows in this decade. So shows like Petticoat Junction and Bonanza were actually still really popular and highly rated, but the networks, in a somewhat insulting move, wanted a more metropolitan demographic tuning into their shows. And so there was this huge sweep of cancellations. The big joke was, if it has a tree, cancel it. And Westerns and the Feel Good Southern shows were wiped from the programming slates. Bonanza survived till 73, and I think Gunsmoke till 75. But most of these types of shows were gone by the time The Dark Boy made its debut on ABC. So... Inevitably, the networks kind of shot themselves in the foot uh, because television was soon oversaturated with cop shows. And then in September of 1972, The Waltons unexpectedly became one of the biggest shows on television. And it was obvious that the pastoral set programming was still very much in demand. So The Dark Boy is actually kind of a neat bridge between these two canceled, or all the canceled shows in the premiere of The Waltons. It was a heartfelt drama and something I think people were really connecting with. And the networks weren't recognizing that, which is unfortunate, but maybe not as uncommon as we would hope. And so, you know, while I said uh, this ad adaptation was fairly faithful to the original short story, the romance angle grew a bit in this version, and I am here for it. Um, there's some really great subtle moments in this short story that I quite like. So, for example, in the story, Judith holds Tom and notes the softness of his hair, and of course we see a version of it happening right here. But what I love about this version is Basileon's growing trust in Judith and his willingness to show his grief to her. Their connection through loss feels really organic. Um, and the way that they are shown in the darkness here, and again, we're seeing what is a presence in the absence, right? And, or an absence in the presence, you can look at it both ways. I think the lighting in this episode is really beautifully done and also gives us another set of emotional cues. And of course, the kissing's a little extra. Um, <laughs> I'm very much in love with these two guys. Um, I'm rooting for them. And I think it's really nice to feel so invested in characters that we really just spend a small amount of time with, particularly Tom Robb. Um, but he enjoys a really extraordinary character arc in the space of like less than 15 minutes, which is amazing. So, you know, I mentioned that anthology television was a great format for opening discourse, but it was also a wonderful way to give us a variety of characters and settings and show us different worlds. And of course, the shot of the light peeking around the clouds that we just saw perfectly reflects um, the last shot of the couple, as well as giving us this sort of actual silver lining metaphor, which is just lovely. So Night Gallery would mark the television debut of Elizabeth Hartman, and it's an impressive introduction. Um, Hartman wanted to act pretty much since she was a young child growing up in Youngston, Ohio. She started her acting career in high school when she got a job at the Youngston Community Playhouse. She was actually cleaning up the theater, but that led her to a part in a production of Our Town, and she won the Ohio Actress of the Year Award for her performance. Um, she'd go on to Carnegie Tech, but only stayed for a little while because she wanted to try her hand at theater and went to New York. Nothing much came of that, so she returned to Ohio and worked for the Cleveland Playhouse and the Kenley Players. This encouraged her once again to go to New York, and this time she did much better. She landed an agent and a partner production of a play at the Colonial Theater called Everybody Out, The Castle is Sinking, for which she received some very warm notices. So there are conflicting reports about how she got cast in A Patch of Blue. Some newspapers said while in Everybody Out, the castle is sinking. A rep for MGM saw her and got her a contract. Others reported that before rehearsal started, she went out to L.A. to see what was going on there and landed on an audition. Either way, uh, she blew audiences away with, as the blind girl who falls in love with a black man. Um, Sidney Poitier said she was an incredibly intuitive actress. And it would seem her career was set. 
Unfortunately, after a handful of roles for which she got a lot of praise, the big screen offers kind of trickled out, and she only did a handful of television appearances as well. Her last on-screen performance was as the voice of Mrs. Brisby in The Rats of Nim. So Hartman wasn't all that interested in television, and she said in an interview to promote Apache Blue, quote, I don't think they'd satisfy me as an actress, but who knows? Someday I might be very glad to get a job in one of them. So, of course, that's her talking about television work. But overall, her on-screen career was brief but memorable. Um, I think a highlight for the actress may have been appearing in Francis Ford Coppola's You're a Big Boy Now because Julie Harris was the co-star and one of Hartman's favorite actresses. Um, in 1987, Hartman committed suicide. She was only 43 years old. An old friend of hers named Robert Temple described her as this, quote, There was something otherworldly about her. She was fragile like a delicate and beautiful butterfly, which is on the verge of extinction, and you want to preserve it because it will never come again. She had a delicate beauty, but it was not her looks that were the main thing. She was so ethereal that she was more spirit than body. I don't believe she was properly incarnated and part of her hung out. End quote. Seventeen magazine interviewed her in 1967, and they wrote, Elizabeth has the unusual gift of being able to project a character with extraordinary sensitivity, sharing with an audience the beauty of knowing another human being from the inside out. Hartman herself in that interview added, I don't think you have to be a great actor to turn in a great performance on film. You can be a great actor and turn in a great performance, but it doesn't depend on that the way a stage performance does. Something has to happen on film so that your personality makes itself felt. And that's what the audience responds to. That's the most important thing. And I do think Harmon brings a lot of sensitivity to the role. I can't imagine another actor doing what she does here. And, you know, in her own way, Judith is stoic, but finds release from the loss of her husband by helping someone else move through their own grief. On a totally personal level, I find this to be enormously powerful and poignant. And, you know, I don't normally bring up the more personal aspects of an actor or filmmaker's life, but I find there's something really interesting about the cast of The Dark Boy. Hartman had suffered with depressive bouts throughout her life and maybe understood the role on another level. Um, although I don't know exactly when the story went into production, Sondergaard lost her husband in July of 1971 and her daughter had died in 1965. Even Derlith, who wrote the source material, had passed away the same year this was produced. And in interviews with Baselion, I was struck with how reporters always noted that despite playing mostly villainous roles on television, he came across as quite gentle. So, you know, there's a real openness to the actress here that I love, and the material is raw and upfront about opening up the discourse on grief. It's one of the things where the cast and crew are certainly talented and the material is great, but I think it also hits at just the right place and time as well. It was a real gathering of talent, but it was also developed with a lot of heart. Um, and I know I've gushed a lot, <laughs> um, and I'm sorry if that's what it sounds like, but it's, this is truly an exceptional episode of the series. I think it's telling a really important story, and so I found that um, anthologies are just a perfect venue to do just this kind of work, and I appreciate what they did. But I also don't want to forget one major change between the short story and the adaptation. In Derlis' story, uh, Joel speaks, but here he is silent, uh, which also supports the idea that the child is a manifestation of the repressed grief. He's more of a figure than a ghost. Um, and for one last time, we're taken into this idea that death is part of the natural world, and the process of um, you know coming to terms with that loss is also natural as well. Here's our last look, really, at South's extraordinary camera work. Um, I can't believe this is a backlot. So much care was taken into creating this world for us. And then we come across our last final beautiful metaphor. At the conclusion of this episode, Tom Robb re references the whippoorwill bird, which is directly taken from Derlis' story, and adds a lot of poignancy to the segment as the whippoorwill is a bird that is commonly heard but less often seen because of its camouflage. 
And this is a really touching way to end uh, one of my favorite entries in the series. The silence here is just, it's beautiful and it's sad. And Tom Robb has a beautiful smile too. And I'm so glad we got to see it. And then our last shot. So I love Rod's opening here. It's wonderful. It really sets the tone for this strange, strange, strange and intriguing segment, which was written and directed by Gene Kearney. Um, if I were to try to tie the dark boy to keep in touch, we'll think of something. I'd probably say they are connected through their depiction of romantic relationships. We just saw one really healthy one. And now this one, not so healthy, maybe. I don't know. You tell me. Um, keep in touch. We'll think of something also handles this idea of fate in really interesting ways. I love the way it uses a dream log logic to set the tone and mood. Um, of course, this is another great painting from Tom Wright, although I'm more partial to the sketch of Joanna Pettit that we'll see in a few minutes. That sketch artist is good. And of course, this is a gorgeous shot of the San Francisco Bridge. Um, so this episode was shot by Lionel Linden, who sadly passed away a couple of months before this episode aired. Uh, but one of my favorite aspects of this segment is the staginess of it. So as compared to John Aston's approach on The Dark Boy, which features a lot of exterior shots and maybe takes a more lush approach, there's a lot about this segment that makes me feel like it could sit next to any contemporary police procedural and no one would be able to really tell the difference except it's quite different and looks are quite deceiving. Um, so keep in touch. We'll think of something uh, is sort of mixing this kind of idea of the normal with this surreal undercurrent. Um, and it's, it's fabulous the way they do it. Um, so that's Richard O'Brien as police Sergeant Bryce. O'Brien worked on both stage and screen and boy, uh, did it always feel like he was playing a cop. Um, he even joked about it once in an interview. Um, he said he played quote, the three P's policemen, priests, and politicians. Um, he began his career in the 1930s in North Dakota as a radio announcer and an amateur regional actor. And for a time he moved to Los Angeles, um, and became a manager of grandma's Chinese theater while he was pursuing acting. But he racked up well over 200 credits, including parts in the Andromeda Strain, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and television would really become a second home for him. And I'm not joking, he was in everything. Um, he also joked that when he was recognized on the street, most people just assumed they knew him in real life and couldn't seem to figure out that he was an actor that they'd seen on TV. And with O'Brien, of course, is Alex Cord. This is Cord's only night gallery appearance. Uh, he plays Eric Sutton, the uber cool musician with an equally cool wardrobe. Um, and it is a fabulous wardrobe. Um, in real life, Cord was married to Joanna Pettit, who plays Claire Foster. And we'll see her here in a minute. And this is the only production they worked on together. Um, Pettit had already proven she could handle the more surreal type storytelling that would become a staple for night gallery. And I think Cord keeps up with her pretty well in this segment. But I just want to go back to the staginess of the production. One of the things that stands out to me in this segment is the dramatic approach to the dialogue. There's something kind of play-like about the character's delivery, and it's a little offsetting. Not distracting, offsetting. Meaning Keep in Touch has a really unusual feel to it. There's something removed and enigmatic about the characters, even though they are residing in spaces that look so familiar to television audiences, especially in this era when cop shows were beginning to proliferate the programming schedule. Using your car for but as I mentioned, this was Alex Kord's only night gallery appearance, but I'm sure you've seen him in 10,000 things. Um, he was born in New York. His birth name was Alex uh, Viespi Jr., and he moved to Wyoming when he was about 11 to recuperate after a bout with polio. He really loved ranch life, and when he was 16, he began working the rodeo circuit. So while doing that, he had to have an operation, and, and he began reading more, and it was here he discovered Shakespeare. So once back in New York as a young adult, he worked as a bricklayer, but never forgot how much he enjoyed those plays. And that led him to working at, uh, with the Stratford, Connecticut Shakespearean Company. 
Then he was accepted into the actor's studio and he began working off-Broadway productions. Episodics began to come his way. Cord appeared under his birth name VSP on shows like Naked City, East Side, West Side, Route 66. And with all the work coming, he changed his name to Cord, which was a tribute to a family he was friendly with while growing up. And the film roles also began to come in. He got a lot of attention for a role as a drug addict in 1965 in Synanon, a part originally meant for Paul Newman. That led him to a remake of Stagecoach, where he played John Wayne's role. And Stagecoach seemed like an easy fit, since he had so much background, you know, working in the rodeo circuit and working with horses. And while he never spurned that career, he did try to separate that world from his life as an actor. And Cord was a deep dive kind of actor. He really liked to immerse himself into par the parts he played. Um, when he played a paraplegic on East Side, West Side, he spent two months prepping for the role. But when he was first getting work, he said he didn't feel like he had the right to call himself an actor. And then he appeared in a London production of Doris Lessing's play uh, titled Play with a Tiger. And he would say that that was a real turning point for him. Um, after uh, a spate of movies early on in his career, Cord settled really nicely into television. You probably recognize him best, maybe, from the 80s action TV series Airwolf. But he did a lot of genre work. Um, the year after his appearance in uh, This Night Gallery, he appeared in The Dead or Alive, and in 1975, he started in Into the Dam. He showed up in episodes of Monsters and Freddy's Nightmares, and he was so good in a really uh, really great 1987 Green and Clark horror film titled The Uninvited, which I watch all the time. Um, but one of his best genre moments came the same year he did this night gallery. Cord starred in a wonderful adaptation of Telltale Heart. It was a short film that played in theaters to qualify for an Academy Award nomination, but it seems to have been hampered by its low budget and not much came of those screenings. The film was then made available for educational purposes. Um, the director, who was an AFI student at the time, went on to direct Big Bad Mama, and he said Cord was an absolute pleasure to work with, which I loved. So part of my research for this track, I located two copies of the script for Keep in Touch, We'll Think of Something. One is at the Harry Ransom Center here in Austin, Texas. The other is at the UCLA Film and Television Archives. And I was able to gather that production for this segment of the Night Gallery began in the summer of 1971. But for whatever reason, it appears that the shoot was pushed back uh, to June 1st of, um, from June 1st, I'm sorry, to July 19th. But one of my favorite moments in the script is how Kearney writes out the word Louvre exactly the way Bryce pronounces it here, Louver, L-O-O-V-E-R. Um, and even I mispronounced the Louvre there, didn't I? Uh, one notable difference is that they dropped the word rape when Bryce tells Sutton that the woman he's looking for would have to have done more than just steal a car if they were to seriously look for her. The word attack replaces it. And then there's a slight change at the end, which I'll get to. Um, so I love all the Joanna Pettit entries, but I think Keep in Touch makes really great, uh, like a double feature with the house. Uh, they make the most of her ethereal presence in both episodes. So here's Mike Rebella on the right as the chauffeur and Paul Trink as the cop. So Rebella... Only had a handful of television credits, but you might know him best maybe for co-founding Charm Life Productions with his partner Frederick Hoffman in San Francisco. The two put in a series of plays in the park, noticeably Shakespeare productions. Uh, Rubello also directed a number of plays. But Paul Trinka was on, of course, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and he actually had a fan club whose tagline was, Don't be a finca, watch Paul Trinka. And I read that his old uh, schoolmates lovingly referred to him as Fuzzy, so the mustache he has there seems to be pretty appropriate here. Doesn't make any sense to me at all. So... One thing about uh, being a San Francisco-based actor is, although it seems Keep in Touch was shot on a backlot, they didn't just use San Francisco as the fictional backdrop. Both Rubello and O'Brien were San Francisco-based actors. O'Brien, in fact, appeared in local TV spots in the mid-1960s playing, you got it, a cop. Um, <laughs> no surprise there. So... 
I've already talked a bit about Joanna Pettit on uh, the season one track for the house. And so I don't want to go too much into that here because I don't want to repeat myself. But we're sort of at this era of her career where, like with Alex Cord, television will become a mainstay for her. And even if she's not starring in theatrical productions, she's getting some great roles in made-for-TV movies. In 1973, she'd appear in a pilot telefilm for Weekend Nun, which was directed by Night Gallery alum Jeanette Zwark. Um, and of course, he directed her in the Night Gallery episode, The Caterpillar. The year before, she starred in a TV movie titled Footsteps, which also featured Richard Crenna, um, an actor she would work again with in the 1980 theatrical The Evil. So she was really adept at genre, and in 1974, co-starred alongside George Kennedy in a rabid skunk in Gordon Hessler's great TV movie, A Cry in the Wilderness. Now, that film was actually one of the top 10 highest-rated TV movies of the 1973-74 season, which is amazing, and it's a great, great movie. Um, in 1973, she starred in another pilot telefilm titled Pioneer Women, which is a film she was really hoping would launch into a series because she felt um, there weren't enough female-led dramas on television at the time, and she was right. It is unfortunate, though, that she never really starred in a television series, but she has left behind numerous amazing performances. Um, her work in Night Gallery is stellar, and I think it really makes the most of her extraordinary talent. And, you know, in interviews in the late 60s, after Cord had married Joanna Pettit, he told journalists that she had a creative drive that couldn't be kept down. And if it could, he wouldn't have married her. Um, and the couple got married in 1968, and they stayed married until 1989. But I wanted to briefly talk about another relationship here. That is the one between Jean Kearney and Jack Laird. So Kearney would work with Laird throughout this production, but they'd also work together on Kojak in a number of different capacities, you know, writing and directing and all kinds of stuff. And the year after this episode of Night Gallery, Jean Kearney would be the writer on the Jack Laird-produced TV movie, The Return of Charlie Chan. So according to Skelton and Benson, Kearney was considered a bit of a protege of Laird's who took a keen interest in him, and their work goes beyond just the projects I've mentioned. Uh, Kearney was a Harvard grad. He worked in radio as well as documentaries and commercials, and he and Laird had what seemed to be a wonderful working relationship and what I'm assuming was a really good friendship. Um, both would actually end up being pretty influential in the world of the made-for-TV movie as well. So, you know, I mentioned Laird produced The Return of Charlie Chan in 72, which Kearney co-wrote. But Laird is actually the man behind the first ever made-for-TV movie. So, See How They Run originally aired on October 7, 1964 on NBC under the NBC World Premiere Movie moniker. It starred John Forsythe, and it's about three kids who run from a hitman after they've witnessed the murder of their father. While it got some note, it is, of course, the ABC Movie of the Week, which made its debut in 69, that normally gets the most attention because it was producing, you know, standalone telefilms every week during the television season. It was much like an anthology show, really. And the movies that came between See How They Run and the start of the ABC Movie of the Week tend to fall by the wayside. Um, in fact, See How They Run is actually considered a lost film, although I know it did rerun at some point, and I'm absolutely positive it's sitting in someone's closet on a long-forgotten VHS tape. So everyone, after this, check your closets, because I know somebody has it, and we need to see it. Uh, but the telephones of this era were really unique and they don't feel like the tv movies that were to come in the 70s so case in point is the 1967 spy thriller how i spent my summer vacation which was produced by laird and written by gene kearney so the movies of the mid-1960s were much fewer and farther uh, between than the ones that followed in the next decade but they do share some commonalities uh, you know tv movies like summer vacation honeymoon with a stranger and the smugglers all had this really cool international appeal they were often shot in far more exotic locations other than Burbank or Culver City. Um, 
They were in places such as Spain and Italy, really beautiful locations. And How I Spent My Summer Vacation is a really visually striking movie about a young man played by Robert Wagner who finds himself on a large yacht owned by Peter Lawford. Uh, the two get into a kind of a crazy cat and mouse kind of situation as it becomes more and more apparent that Lawford is involved in some kind of larger political conspiracy. So, as I said, uh, it sits really well with other telephones from the 60s, lush locales, colorful sets and wardrobes at its international feel. The beautiful cinematography came from Lionel Linden, who of course shot this segment of Night Gallery as well. And it was directed by David Lowell Rich, who directed the Twilight Zone episode of late, I think, of Cliffordville. So, Laird and Kearney had remarkable television careers that intersected in a number of meaningful ways. And they were quite influential for the works that go beyond Night Gallery and even Kojak. The two seem to bring out the best in each other, and they left this really amazing legacy and connection that goes on to a number of different levels. It's just a shame that while Kearney did write some great telefilms, including Crime Club in 1973, he didn't direct one. He has a great eye, and I would have been really interested to see what he's done uh, with that format as a director. And so now we're coming up on one of my favorite moments in um, this segment. So... The last 10 minutes of this just take place in a bar, and we're just watching this interplay between these two people as the secrets begin to get, you know, revealed. But then we have this really neat camera shot. It's coming up here in just a second. Um, Cord puts his hand on her shoulder, and then watch the way the camera swings around. And this is just pointing out subtly that the tables are turning in Claire Foster's favor. I just love this moment. I think it's so brilliant. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned before, there is an unease to this segment that I really like. Everything looks like it should be, but not everything is as it should be. And I think that's an important distinction. So in some ways, the setting at the police station foreshadows the work that was to come for Kearney and Laird on Kojak. And there is a really interesting and almost bland aesthetic to the first part of the segment. But, you know, even the bar, which is admittedly fabulous, I'm not going to lie, it seems like a normal setting or more normal. But then these ideas of dreams and predestination begin to take on this larger meaning. So literary scholar Boris Eichenbaum considered the idea that film is essentially a dream that is based on a filmmaker's logic and he argues that film has no naturalism to it a film can mimic real life but quote only on condition that he subordinates this material to the general stylistic imprint of the film and to a genre pattern end quote and i think genre patterns are really interesting and essential here so I think we can look at this to some degree as a kind of a strange neo-noir where the male protagonist is troubled, he's not conventional, here he is obsessed, an obsession that takes over rational and logic, he needs to find this woman although he doesn't know why, and of course Claire is the perfect femme fatale, uh, the one who always knows where the story will go or will do what it takes to get it to go her way. So essentially dreams and film, right, have always overlapped into one another because of how both occupy our minds with images and narratives, whether they are fully understood or not. So film creates the language, and therefore I think stylistic choices are always pretty important, you know. Um, Kearney does a great job of things here by creating a normal, even mundane world, but injecting it with some sort of subtle surrealism that undercuts the monotony of what looks like just day-to-day -day living. So, you know, I mentioned this might make a neat pettit double for the house, but the two, of course, look nothing alike. And I love the varied approach to what is kind of the same story about how our dreams telegraph our fate and we are powerless against that fate. Something bigger is at play, whether that be the case in the house where it takes on a larger meaning about the cultural landscape of the 70s. Or maybe what we see here, Sutton on the verge of understanding the dream wasn't about him. It's about Claire. He's not in control. 
And it all builds to this beautiful, you know, conversation that's happening. And this last scene is actually, like I said, 10 minutes long. It's half the segment. And yet there's nothing static about it. So, you know, in 1975, Peter Wood wrote an essay for the American Film Journal titled Television is Dream. And he writes, both television and dreams have a highly visual quality. Both are highly symbolic. Both involve a high degree of fantasy and wish fulfillment. Both television and dreams appear to contain much that is disjointed and uh, trivial. But the contents of dreams and perhaps someday of television can be shown to be consistent and coherent. And I think this ties in well to the work of both Laird and, Laird and Kearney, who were already influential figures in the world of television at this point. They were at the beginning of the change in the landscape, and while it couldn't be seen here quite yet, later television lovers such as myself could see the bigger meaning. And yeah, Sun's wardrobe is too groovy for words. Um, I love the choices here for him, and of course Claire's gorgeous dress. Bill Job handled the costumes. He worked on a lot of things, like Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and worked with Kearney and Laird on Kojak. Um, he won an Emmy for Outstanding Costume Design for the afternoon series. Um, it was titled The ABC Afternoon Play Break. That episode was titled Mask of Love. And he also designed uniforms for businesses and was known for his formal approach. A lot of his uniforms were uh, completed with uh, top hats and tails. And of course, the whole setting with this bar, it's fabulous. And it gives this episode kind of a neat color scheme change from the grays of the police station. But finally, I wanted to point out a couple of minor changes uh, Kearney makes to the script. They're small, uh, but there's kind of a fun note he added. So most of what was written on Kearney's page ends up on the script as is. Not surprising, since he was the director and I'm sure he had a pretty set vision of what he wanted. But he switches the kiss, which we just saw here. Um... It was to be at the end of the script originally, uh, as Sutton's hand is being cut by Claire. But the dialogue remains the same, and Kearney describes Sutton as someone who has, quote, divined the truth. But of course, he doesn't realize who's in control now. I mean, admittedly, these two are fire, right? I mean, they are. Court uh, said he enjoyed working with Pettit, not just because he was married to her, but because she's such a good actress. So these final moments... Um, you know, are a little different from the way he wrote it in the shooting script. Here's how Kearney writes the scene. He embraces her again, angle tightening. Their lips fuse. Suddenly Sutton winces. His hand expression, his, I'm sorry, his expression, a mixture of pain and puzzlement. He pulls back, lifting his right hand, close up on the hand, dripping with blood from a long gash across the back. So we're getting to that moment right here, which is pretty fabulous. Um, and of course we don't see it. But Kearney left a little note in uh, the shooting script where he wrote, this will of course be handled with our usual good taste, which <laughs> still makes me laugh. And maybe that's not good taste and I'm laughing since we're talking about an open wound on somebody. But I really, really do love the ending of this one. I think the real life coupling of Corn Pettit are fire. They're fire and they work so well together and they really make this really crazy, confused, enigmatic kind of story based on dream logic just feel so real. And, um, you know, I think it's a shame that the two didn't do more together, but if nothing else, I'm so glad that we have this segment. And again, my name is Amanda Reyes and I really appreciate you listening to this track. I do hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Bye.